Father, that night when the angels broke into the sky, they said to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. They said, glory to God in the highest. There's this tension this morning where, Father, you are so eager to be with us. You're so eager to meet our needs. You're so eager to care for us. But you're also zealous for your glory and to be made bigger in our lives. So help us to be present to that tension this morning when we have needs. Um, Lord, help us to be grateful for the ways that you meet them. you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, welcome here to Regen, fam. Good to see you. Um, before we get into the sermon, I don't want to forget, um, Savannah and young Dan are going to pass out some bookmarks to you. Um, so everybody's going to get one of these. Um, I think that was Jenna Frisk's phone going off her alarm a minute ago, was it? I don't know. I'm going to call, was that 1128? Was that what that was for? Okay, so um, a couple weeks ago in worship, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we shared that we are entering a discernment process with the spiritual family who worships here at 930. Uh, they, uh, we are in some conversations about what would it would look like for Otterbein and for Regen both communities who worship at 1128 State Road, what would it look like uh, for us to be one spiritual family uh, together to form a new entity? And so our leadership teams met in early December, and one of the things that we're going to be doing together over the next few weeks is praying into what God has for us. And so want to invite you to set your phone to go off at 1128 a.m. Uh, and to pray these prayers, Right? Uh, for God's name to be glorified in us and through us, because it's not about us, it's about him. Uh, for unity of heart and mind expressed in humility. We feel like it's really important for us to be unified, but there to be love and humility there, and that's kind of a Philippians 2 thing. And then for God to give us a vision for discipleship and for blessing our community. If you're paying attention and you know this, this is up in and out, right? Those three marks of the life of Jesus up his relationship with the Father, in as a spiritual family, and out as a family on mission to the world. We see that. So I want to invite you to be praying at 1128. My phone actually is set to go off every day but Sunday. So, but I would not be mad. I would not be mad if our phones all went off at 1128 on Sunday. So we're going to be praying into that. And this is all ahead of a public vision day that will be on Saturday, January 25th. If you have a pulse and you call Regen home, you're welcome to be there as we discern what God is leading us into. And so um, we're excited about what God's doing. Um, We're excited about what God's doing. If you have questions about that, hit me up. You're going to get an email about this. We sent out an email a couple weeks ago kind of outlining some of this stuff. If you're not getting our weekly email, that might be why sometimes you feel like, I don't know what's going on. And so if you use one of those cards at the back, that's one of the ways that you can sign up for the email and stay in the loop on that front. Yeah, next week, no 11.15 a.m. gathering, uh, just at 4 and at 7. And then on Sunday the 29th, um, the Sunday after Christmas, we always do a brunch. So plan to bring a brunch food. Um, Chick-fil-A nuggets that you bought the day before are acceptable. 
Uh, so, you know, grab them Saturday, stick them in the fridge, reheat them. Um, nobody will be mad about that. Um, and we'll eat, and then we have a kind of a special worship service planned. And then in January, Zach Holden and I are going to be teaching a series on uh, embracing a supernatural lifestyle, walking with the Holy Spirit. So um, excited about that. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, while I get myself all prepared here. Isaiah 9. I'm thinking a lot about that phrase, tidings of comfort and joy. It's in a Christmas song. Tidings of comfort and joy. Thinking about how that's really good news. It is really good news that Jesus has come to us. But I'm also thinking about how where we are right now is actually an advent Advent is that season of the church year that reminds us we're not all the way there yet. We have not fully arrived at comfort and joy. Instead, many of us, many of us are waiting and hoping for comfort and for joy in the midst of darkness. Last week, we began to give some thought to this darkness. Two weeks ago, really, Vanessa led us well. Last week, we looked at sometimes how that darkness is something we go running for full on into through sin. Through our disobedience, we plunge ourselves into darkness. But this week, I, I want to look at another one of those masks that darkness wears. And it's that mask when darkness comes crashing into our lives out of nowhere and plunges us into chaos and plunges us into d- distress. Fleming Rutledge, there's a name, Fleming Rutledge. She's an Episcopal priest who uh, has become really prolific about the last five years. She writes, It must be said of Advent that it is not for the faint of heart. To grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very, for, the very worst. Entering into the very worst mean giving, means giving serious consideration to the most hopeless situations. This morning, I want us to give serious consideration to the most hopeless of situations. I want to hear from the prophet Isaiah, or if you're from England, Isaiah. That's how they say it, which is way cooler than saying Isaiah. I want to, with Isaiah, give serious consideration to the most hopeless of situations. As Isaiah speaks to God's people then, and those words speak to us today, in the midst of hopeless and joyless situations, we find where God makes himself known in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our pain. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and look with me at Isaiah chapter 9. It begins this way. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You know, when you're in the middle of deep, dark pain and suffering, and someone who, like, stubbed their toe last week says, I know just how you feel. 
don't you kind of think to yourself, I'm going to punch you in the face and then you'll know how I feel. Um, I feel about that as the same as when um, those of you with pets try to compare pet parenting to child parenting. I love you. It's not the same. And uh, you'll find that out, some of you. And uh, I I found that it's socially appropriate to lock your dogs in cages. I'm told that that would get us arrested if we did that with Jack, right? And uh, Isaiah 9 is written not to the person who stubbed their toe, but to the person at the very, very bottom, the person who is experiencing the most real, the most deep, the most profound pain and suffering. That's who Isaiah has in mind. And Isaiah's argument is kind of from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, listen, if there is good news for those of us at the very bottom, if there is good news for those of us in the deepest part of the darkness, then there's got to be good news for everyone. See, Isaiah addresses specific people here in verse 1, Zebulun and Naphtali, which are two of Israel's northernmost tribes. They are the hardest hit in the Assyrian invasion of 733. Was the rest of Israel suffering from that invasion in 733? Of course, but no one, no one had it worse than Zebulun and Naphtali. And it's to these people that Isaiah addresses his message. It's to these people who have been absolutely decimated by this. It is to these people that Isaiah speaks. And he says, listen, in the midst of your darkness, I want to tell you, no more contempt, no more anguish, no more gloom. Instead, Isaiah says, glory. But of course we ask, how? How is that possible? He says in verses 2 through 3, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy as with joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. See, the suffering and pain that Naphtali and Zebulun are experiencing, they're coming to an end. And so, by an extension, the pain of every one of God's people is coming to an end. There is hope in the midst of darkness because in the midst of the gloom, in the midst of the darkness of despair, Isaiah says, a light is breaking forth. And that light spoken into our darkness means hope and joy. Do you notice that the word joy appears twice in this text? You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. This dawning leads to two kinds of joy. Joy at the harvest and joy when the spoil is divided. I've kind of charted it here. These opposite spheres of joy. It's a literary device called a merism. Opposites to denote totality. These opposite spheres of joy mean every possible kind of joy will be available to God's people when the light breaks in. Every possible kind of light, every possible kind of joy will be available to God's people when the light breaks in. It's not just a little bit of joy, not a lot of joy. It's the maximum amount of joy. It is tidings of comfort and joy, even in the midst of darkness and gloom and anguish. But notice something. Notice what's happening in the text. Isaiah is speaking about a future event. Isaiah is speaking at about a time in the future when God's presence, God's light will dawn on the darkness of humanity. But as as Isaiah speaks about the future, grammar nerds pay attention, he's using past tense words. Walked in darkness. By the way, walked in darkness means lived their whole lives in 
walked, dwelt, multiplied, increased. He's talking about the future, but he's using the past tense to do it. Isaiah is speaking of future events in the past tense because the future is just that certain. The future is so certain, you may as well consider it done. Isaiah is so sure that God will, he speaks as though God has. Isaiah is so certain that God will, he speaks as though God has. And what that means in the words of Alec Montier, he says, The eye of faith looks at all of this darkness and affirms that real as it is, it is not the real reality. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dreams shattered, and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises, and to make affirmations of faith? Isaiah insists here that hope is a present reality. I love this. Part of what constitutes the now. The darkness is true, but not the whole truth. The darkness is true, but not the whole truth. And he says, and certainly not the fundamental truth. See, it's almost like, I charted this here, it's almost like the future hope reverberates backwards into our present and transforms it. The future hope reverberates backwards in time and, and, and it becomes our present. It makes hope part of the now. It makes hope part of the reality. It makes hope part of the now. Isaiah is calling us, notice by the way, to see the darkness, to acknowledge the darkness, not to ignore it, not to sweep it under the rug, not to look at each other when someone says, hey, how's your week going? And say, I'm going great when inside you're falling apart. No, in fact, what Isaiah is inviting us to do is to be real about the darkness, to name it. You want to name it and claim it, theology, let's name and claim that the darkness is real that the suffering is real, that the pain is happening, but that that truth is not the whole truth. The darkness in your life and mine, the suffering, the pain, the disappointment, it's only part of the truth, and it's certainly not the whole truth. In the midst of the darkness, knowing that, we are presented with a choice. Every day, walking with Jesus, you are presented with a choice. Every day, walking with Jesus, you are presented with a choice. I can live as if all of this is my reality and experience hope in the now, or I can look at the darkness, throw up my hands, and say it must all be for naught. Walking with Jesus is not Novocaine. I will say this until I die. Walking with Jesus is not Novocaine. God does not put you to suffering like, oh, if he, what is the thing that people say? He must be making me stronger. That is so heretical, I don't even have time to talk about it. The darkness is real, it is present. And walking with Jesus does not eliminate the suffering of our lives. It does, not, it does not make the pain go away. What it does do is it transforms us in the process. What it does do is it transforms our present to have radical hope in the midst of darkness, radical joy in the midst of darkness. Not because everything is wonderful and great for those of us living in Zebulun and Naphtali right now, but because one day everything's going to be awesome. One day I will have total joy, and that reverberates into my present, and it changes the way I think. It changes the way I live. It changes the way I react to my circumstances. Isaiah is coming to us with tidings of comfort and joy, and he says that our joy is secure today because God secures it later. How does he do this? 
in verses 4 and 6, it starts with the word for three times. For this, for this, for that. When you see the word for in the Bible, it tells you what it's there for. It's giving an explanation to why we can have joy in the midst of the darkness. And so Isaiah says in verse 4, for the yoke, I love this verse, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, this is all slavery image. You have broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian was when uh, God delivered uh, his people under the judge Gideon. There was a battle at Midian and God cast off their oppressors. Uh, He breaks the rod. For every boot of the trampling warrior, that word boot in Hebrew is a borrowed word from Assyrian. Um, It is a word only used once in the Old Testament. It is literally the Assyrian word for the boots they wore to war. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, thousands of years before Jesus is born, Isaiah is talking about Jesus. Isaiah calls God's people to have joy on the basis of a future promise, that someday in the future, God's going to send a child. God's going to send a son. What kind of son is he? He's a son who breaks the yoke of the oppressor. He's the son who destroys our enemies. He's the son who, notice this, the the shoulder word, he removes the burdens from our shoulders by placing the burden on his own. And those of you familiar with the Bible, immediately what should spring to mind is Jesus walking up the hill to be crucified, carrying his own cross. See, Isaiah is telling God's people that their king, their Messiah, what what he's going to be like. And, And with New Testament eyes, with hindsight, we see that Jesus is the son who breaks the yoke and staff and rod of our oppressor. Scripture says we were slaves to sin, but we are no longer. See, Jesus destroys our enemies. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus takes the burden off of my shoulders, off of yours, by taking the burden on his, and he says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light, and come to me and I will teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. Here's the question, though. Isaiah brings tidings of comfort and joy to ancient Israel by promising a Messiah. He says, listen, I know you're in darkness now. It's going to get better and let that hope reverberate. But for us, we live on the other side of the first advent. We live on the other side of the Messiah's coming. That's what Christmas is all about. So let me ask you, those of us sitting in pain and suffering this Christmas, now that Jesus is here, is everything better? No. No. This is why Advent, this season of the church year, has two meanings. It's not only about remembering and reliving the past coming of Jesus, it's looking forward to the future coming of Jesus, the second Advent. It's about Jesus coming in glory and finally, ultimately, putting an end to our oppressor, sin. Because I don't know about you, I still sin. I still have to say sorry to my wife, to my friends. That's not what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is great because it's the place, it'll be the first time in my life when I never have to ever say I'm sorry again. 
See, Jesus is going to come in glory and he will finally and ultimately destroy our enemy, Satan. He will be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation says. Right now, the principalities and the power, the prince of the power of the air, has some measure of authority in this world, but there is coming a day when he will be done. Right now, we are burdened by sickness and sadness and suffering, but one day when Jesus comes again, that will be over. See, we are so looking forward to the coming of our king in glory. We're still looking forward to the kingdom. Isaiah 9, 7, I love what it says here. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you were with us this summer, we started looking at the life of David and the kingdom and the monarchy in Israel in January, early February. We're coming back to 2 Samuel and we'll put a bow on that. In 2 Samuel 7, God goes to David and promises him that one of his descendants will sit on a throne forever. And Jesus is a descendant of David. He is, if you read the Gospels, a lot of them call him son of David. See, Jesus is the government. When we sing like king of my heart, we tend to kind of spiritualize it. Jesus is right now running a government. It's a kingdom marked by peace and justice and righteousness. It will be upheld and established by the zeal of the Lord. And let me tell you, there is no administration of any president in any living memory, blue or red or in between, that has even gotten a stone's throw close to the kind of kingdom Jesus runs, the kind of kingdom you and I are called to bring even now in the midst of our ordinary lives on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says this kingdom will have, Isaiah says this kingdom will have no end. You will not be able to find its boundary markers. In fact, uh, it, this reminded me of in Ephesians 1, Paul says he fills all things with himself. When we get to glory, you'll say, I'm going to go find the end of the kingdom and you will never get there. This, is, by the way, is Genesis language. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We can't do it, but the second Adam can. So Jesus comes and establishes his rule and reign everywhere. See, Isaiah's words to his people, Isaiah's words to his people is that they can have joy in the midst of their present darkness because God will one day, one day cause light to shine. And that future hope reverberates backwards. It's the first dawn on the horizon that stirs hope. And here we are, thousands of years later, Jesus has come, that sunshine has dawned, but we're still, in many ways, sitting in darkness. We're still waiting in our pain and in our suffering. We linger in the shadows. And so the first thing we're called to do is acknowledge and believe that the shadows in our life, the darkness in our life, is not the whole truth. It's true, but it's certainly not the whole truth. It's certainly not the whole story. And as I wait and as I decide and as I live, by the way, isn't it interesting? We talked about this a few months ago that a lot of our faith is not a feeling, it's a decision. It's up here, it's not down here. If I wait to believe that if I wait for my feelings to catch up to hope, they never will. I have to decide. I have to decide. Addie, how's the deciding going? Not great. 
And while we wait in this gloom and darkness, we don't do it alone. Jesus comes to us as Emmanuel. Craig and Danielle read that word. means God with us. And I think what's so great about this passage is how it reveals that Jesus has this heart to be precisely, precisely what we need him to be. His name will be called, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, I wonder if this Christmas you need a a wonderful counselor. There's some mental health professionals in the room, and I, I could say, by the way, you're a wonderful counselor. That's not what this means. That word wonderful means supernatural, beyond the natural. It means Jesus possesses a wisdom and insight and understanding here for unseen and not able to be understood. Listen, this Christmas, you're thinking about that relationship. You're thinking about that person that you had a fight with at Easter that's going to be around uh, your dining room table, and you're wondering, how in the heck am I going to navigate this? Your own wisdom can't get it done. You can read five Enneagram books and four Myers-Briggs personalities. It's not going to get it done. You need a wonderful counselor. You need someone with supernatural insight and understanding to press into that with you. And Jesus says, that's me. Scripture says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask, let her ask, and it'll be given by the Father of lights with whom no shadow, there is no shadow due to change. Do you need a wonderful counselor? Do you need a mighty God? Do you need a God who can work miracles like you could not believe? Do you need a God whose power and presence will break through in unexpected, unimaginable, totally surprising ways? This is the God who breaks the rod of oppressors. This is the God who leads his people out of slavery and into freedom. This is the God who walks free of the grave, a mighty God, the Lord of hosts, he is in this passage, possessing unlimited resources. This Christmas, you need a miracle. You need a miracle. And not some sort of Santa came in the middle of the night and everything's wonderful miracle. I'm talking about an honest-to-God miracle. He's a mighty God. He is an everlasting father. And I was thinking about this this morning, and I felt like the Lord said to me, please remind them that if their mom isn't with them, if their dad isn't with them, I will be their parent. My mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord is ta- will take me in. Psalm 27 says, maybe your parent has failed, has harmed you. Jesus comes and says, I will be their parent this Christmas time. Some of you lost your parents this year. Some of you lost your parents in recent memory. Jesus says, I will be their parent. See, Jesus' fatherhood speaks to his comfort and his compassion and his desire to nurture And some of us get so caught up in our family dysfunction and disappointment that we forget that Jesus wants to show up and say hi. Maybe you need a prince of peace. And you think about that word, peace, and you think, yeah, I'm a hot, anxious mess, sign me up. But but it's more than that. Or it is that, and here's how Jesus brings the peace. See, that Hebrew word is shalom. It means wholeness. It means that Jesus is royalty. He's the very best at whole because he alone is whole 
And that wholeness and that completeness and that congruence does mean, yes, the lack of conflict and the lack of, of disagreement and, and, the, and the lack of anxiety. But understand that if Jesus is distributing peace to his people, it's not because he happened to bring a bag like Santa did that was full of peace. He's bringing peace because he is peace. Ephesians says he himself is our peace. If you are anxious, if you are worried, if you woke up in the middle of the night stressing about something, if when you woke up this morning, there was your anxiety standing over you and said, hello, I have your whole day planned, Jesus comes to give you peace. Peace in a time when we spend too much for too many. Peace in a time when January 1, you're going to get your credit card bill and go, oh crap, not again, Prince of Peace. See, this Christmas, Jesus wants to give you the gift of himself. And what's so amazing to me about Jesus, I don't have the words for it necessarily, is that he comes and he offers himself to you exactly as you need him to be. And next Christmas, and next week, and tomorrow, when you say, time out, Jesus, I don't need a prince of peace, I need a mighty God, Jesus doesn't have to go say, hang on, let me go change my clothes. Let me go get my tools. He says, okay. By means of response time, I just want to invite you to kind of have a conversation with Jesus around this. And here's the heart behind response time. Um, Jesus tells the story in Matthew 7. He says, everybody who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice, he says, they're like a foolish builder. He says, they, they go and they build their house, but they build it on sand. And when the storms come and the winds beat against it, the house collapses he says, foolish builders are the people that come to church and we hear the message and we feel so encouraged and by the time we get home Sunday night, it's gone from our heads. Jesus says, though, there's such a thing as a wise builder. And what I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do as a church is be a church of wise builders, yes? Wise builder is what? Someone who hears God's word and puts it into practice. There was revelation in both cases. God spoke in both cases. But a wise builder hears it and pauses and puts it into practice. So every Sunday... When Kyle would love to preach for three more minutes or we could do another song, we say, no, we want to stop. And we want to be with Jesus. We're also about cultivating intimacy and encounter and invite you. So here's what I'd like you to do. Could you just bow your heads? Nothing fancy today. And look at your life. Like, we live our lives up so close to it. See if you can't take a step back. And as you look at that, what do you need? Maybe you need a wonderful counselor so you know what to do. Maybe you need a mighty God to make a way when there is no way. Maybe you need an everlasting father because you're just so tired of being disappointed by your mom and dad. You're so tired of missing your mom and dad. Maybe you need a prince of peace so that that vice around your gut would just let go. Would you just in the quietness of your own head 
say, Jesus, this is what I need. And if you don't know what you need, would you say, Jesus, I don't know what I need. as you're thinking about your life and stepping back from that situation if you can't see Jesus in that picture in your head. And even if you can't, I wonder if you might say, thanks. Thanks for being what I need. Jesus, you take the steps three at a time to get to us. And we thank you for that. Jesus, I pray for my family here. I pray for my brothers and my sisters. Pray for their families. I pray for their Christmas, I pray that today you would reveal yourself to be everything that they need more.